Hey, by now, you know that we have DC Cyber Week and Cyber Talks lined up for you next week, but a special event going on. The SNG Live Speaker Series at Scoop News Group headquarters. Join us Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday morning for a speaker series. I will be talking to some of the most interesting people in cybersecurity right now on Monday. I will be talking with Nicole Monteforte, the head of cyber readiness and wargaming at Booz Allen Hamilton, and RSA Field CTO Steve Schmaltz, uh, discussing what it takes to be more proactive in cybersecurity posture and how cyber war games exercises have prompted companies to be more proactive in their cybersecurity. On Tuesday, uh, Selena Larson, a threat intelligence expert with Dragos, will be joining me to talk about all the threats around ICS. And on Wednesday, with states across the U.S. legalizing sports betting at a rapid rate, we're going to be talking with some gambling experts that sit on the precipice of uh, gaming and cybersecurity. The gambling compliance editor-in-chief, James Kilby, Benham Dianim, a partner at Paul Hastings Law Firm, and Gus Fritchie, the VP of Senate International, will be joining us to talk about the unique challenges that come with protecting people's information and money in the constantly evolving industry. Check all of it out on the DCCyberWeekPage.com. You can register to attend live, or we will be live streaming this on our Twitter account. So for more information on our SNG Live series, check out DCCyberWeek.com. Let's go. Welcome to Securiosity for October 18th. I'm Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel, bringing you the best wrap-up of InfoSec News. One highly watched Russian hacker group just kept on hacking while we all watched. We'll talk about what some researchers unveiled this week. In our interview, we talked to Ori Eason, founder and CEO of Trusana, about his quest to move both consumers and enterprises away from two-factor authentication. Another big cybersecurity company was snatched up by private equity. We will tell you who in our business segment. But first, let's get to all that news. One of the gremlin-linked hacking groups that breached the Democratic National Committee in 2016 has remained active in years that followed, even if it's been less visible. Cozy Bear, also known as APT29, began using different malicious software and new hacking techniques after 2016, according to ESET findings published on Thursday. Hackers targeted U.S. think tanks in 2017 defense contractors in 2018, and three European countries' ministries of foreign affairs. Cozy Bear operates on behalf of either the Russian spy services SVR, the FSB, or both, but researchers are not definitively sure. Greg, why have they been so elusive? I just think it's because they're actually good at doing this. Um, uh, APT29 has been one of the more elite APTs that we've covered and that's out there in the world. Um, They know what they're doing. They know how to, you know, go underground and stay silent while they retool and then stay quiet once they put all of their uh, attacks out there. Um, Even though companies are watching, it does take a while for, you know, the research to be done and for all of this to come online. So I'm not surprised that this operation that was detailed, um, you know, took some months to actually, you know, pin down and say this was ABC 29. They're very elite. They're very good. And uh, they clearly don't care that the world is watching. They trust in their talent and will go after targets no matter what. Why don't we know if it's SFB or SVR? 
Well, that's because th- that's why they're so good. Um, we really don't know. We really can't, um, you know, attribute all the way back to the machines and and where, you know, actually in the Russian government they sit. Um, it, it's tough. They're they're really really good. Um, it, and are we sure it's Russian government and not just some individual group of hackers unrelated? Oh yeah, absolutely. Because uh, ESET also found evidence that uh, you know this operation that they found some of the malware was also used by other Russian groups, uh, Turla, which we've talked about, and uh, the ubiquitous Fancy Bear have also used uh, some of the same uh, hardware and used some of the same computers uh, that were used in this particular operation that ESET put out research on this week. So we, we do know that it is Russia and it's not just some false flag and it's some group uh, that's pulling a fast one on everybody that, no, this is very clearly uh, Russia. And there's some other hallmarks that point to it being Cozy Bear. But yeah, nobody can point it back to the uh, you know, exact computers or exact building, which would give us a little bit more intel on exactly where APT29 sits. So investigators probing the Capital One data breach say they have between 20 and 30 terabytes of data in their possession as they prepare for the trial against the alleged hacker. Uh, The government now is parsing through millions of individual files, prosecutors said, as well as a spreadsheet agency they found recently on Thompson's computer, which contained aggregated information apparently stolen from the bank. It was all part of the government's argument to keep Paige Thompson incarcerated before her trial. But Judge Robert Lasnik seemed more receptive to a defense argument that Thompson, who is transgender, may be safer in a halfway house than federal prison. So, Jen, you know, the judge gave this really uh, interesting um, speech. I, I don't know if you could call it a speech, but he was talking to Thompson. We got the transcript of the detention hearing earlier this week and said, you know, look, you're transgender. The country has not been kind to transgenders, especially in the prison system. And while I'm not sure I'm going to release you to a halfway house right now, I'm going to make the Bureau of Prisons uh, examine it. And if we find something that's suitable to your efforts, uh, we'll we'll think about it and we'll rule forward. Do you think this is a good middle ground? I mean, honestly, I can't imagine a halfway house is is really that much safer. I question why not... um, release the person into um, their own home with an ankle bracelet? I think because that home, that home, I think, uh, I'm not sure because I haven't followed up on uh, what happened to his side of things, but the house that she was staying at, remember it was raided and the other roommate that she had was also taken into custody because he had a wide arsenal of uh, weaponry that I do not think was all legal. So I don't know if he's still being held, but I think that the um, the government was like, uh, we don't think it's a good idea to release her back into a house where she's surrounded by an arsenal and she could, you know, tap into the internet and maybe, you know, kind of cover up her crimes or, or something like that. So I think that that was the reasoning for not releasing her on her own uh, recognizance. And yeah, I think one of the stipulations of the halfway house would be that she does not have um, computer access, or even if she does get computer access, that it's heavily monitored. Yeah, I just can't imagine um, the security in a halfway house is any different really than being incarcerated at home. But I guess that's a something held for the richer people. 
Yeah, I I think also that part of it has to do with the fact that uh, Thompson's lawyers say that she can get better better mental care in a halfway house because the Bureau of Prisons has been leaning on their own uh, social workers and their own staff. Which I mean, the, the the judge says that that particular prison that she's housed in has a pretty good system, but at the same time, Thompson is like, okay, I, I, I would like to see my own doctors. Like, let me figure this out on my own, which uh, again, get, gets back to what the, the judge is doing here. And I would have to say, I would, if I was, God forbid, placed in, in jail, I would kind of want to see my own doctors if at all possible. I mean, sure, but I imagine that's not a privilege um, most people get. Right, definitely. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see how this uh, progresses, but it, it was very, very interesting to read. I, if anybody wants to read the, the full comments uh, from the judge, we have the transcript on cyberscoop.com. I mean, it's clear that the the judge there is actually weighing all of uh, the, you know, everything that goes into this, this is not an easy decision that the courts are just like, you're a criminal, just go sit and and wait. There are definitely some, some nuances here that the judge is well, well, uh, aware of. Well, and I think it's great that they're, they're thinking about, um, safety, right? Cause safety is clearly going to be an issue, um, in this case, at least according to the judge. So, um, you know, hopefully they find the best thing that keeps everybody safest. Agreed. So last month, a researcher published Checkmate, a series of technical instructions that enable users to remove restrictions imposed on their iPhone by Apple or telecommunication companies. Now, attackers have launched a malicious website that masquerades as a legitimate page only to launch a hacking tool that tries to take over an affected device. Cisco's Talus Threat Intelligence crew found CheckBrain.com, a site meant to look like a legitimate project that researchers can use to modify their iPhone's processes and jailbreak their device. Instead, the malicious CheckBrain site encourages visitors to download an application that clicks on risky advertisements and installs iOS video games. All the while, it looks like the true CheckBrain installation process is underway. Greg, you can't be surprised by this, can you? No, not at all. I'm, I'm not at all. This is we talked about it when uh, Checkmate was released a couple weeks ago. That there is a certain sect of like jailbreaking nerds that will, um, you know, g- get into this. They're the ones that are excited about this. There are going to be scammers that prey upon that excitement, and sure enough, here we are. You know, whether it's Look, the, the jailbreaking community is made up primarily of younger dudes. So it, it, that's where all of these scams sort of originate. When something pops off uh, that younger dudes are into, the scams are sure to follow. Like I, I remember when last year when Fortnite was put on Android and they decided not to go through the Google Play Store. We all said that, uh, okay, the scammers are going to hop all over this and you're going to see fake versions of Fortnite that are laced with malware hit, hit the open internet. And sure enough, that's what happened. I think Cisco was, you know, the, the Talus unit was the ones that discovered that too. And I think that that malware, those fake Fortnite apps with the malware was actually on the internet before the real Fortnite Android app was on the internet. So anytime that you see something that, uh, you know, younger dudes are like really, really excited over and there's not a lot of security around it, you can bet that there's going to be a scam up as soon as possible. And you're probably going to have Cisco find it. So Greg, what kind of iOS video games got installed on your phone? 
I actually do not keep games on my phone at all because I just, after reading about the data collection that went into like Candy Crush, uh, and, and this was years ago, like 2013, 2014, like just learning all the data that those those companies pull in, I was like, ah, I don't need this. I'll pass. I don't need to play games on my phone. I'll, I'll stick to my consoles. You don't have any games on your phone. You have children. I have uh, tablets for them that they play all, all their games on. Uh, yeah, an Amazon tablet that they do uh, all their all their games on, and they're completely happy with that. They have no idea that that uh, Daddy's phone might hold video games yet, and hopefully, they don't find that out. Oh man! So the U.S. Department of Defense for years has tried to influence defense contractors to secure their networks against foreign hackers interested in their intellectual property. On Wednesday, Katie Arrington, a politician turned chief information security officer for the Pentagon's Acquisition Policy Office, raised the urgency of those warnings. She told a room full of contractors that they should expect to get breached, that adversaries are intent on stealing their data, and that they had to shape up if they want to do business with the Pentagon. The stern words come as the Pentagon prepares to implement stricter cybersecurity standards for contracting in the next year. Jen, this is some tough talk here. Do you think this is finally going to change things at the DOD? One, I think this is great, right? I think we're not paying enough attention to security when it comes to um, contractors. And so I'm glad to hear this. I you know, want to see what those new stricter standards are before I really make a judgment, right? Because I think it's great to have the Pentagon more secure and our government employees more secure. But I wonder how you sort of force that down um, into um, everyone else. Yeah. Uh, and I would say that this isn't just Katie Arrington, you know, uh, this isn't a solo crusade here. This is the line from a lot of people at uh, the DOD, whether it's the DOD CIO, whether it's people at the NSA, particularly Ann Neuberger at the Cybersecurity Directorate. This is definitely a big thing. They are reaching out to the defense industrial base to be like, look, we depend on you guys for a lot. We give you guys billions and billions of dollars in money. You guys need to step up and be more secure or we're just not going to do business with you. And that and that's it. And that's all. So I think it's a really smart line and I think it's uh, a really good message. But again, let's see if uh, the contractors actually follow suit. So the selection and prices of malicious software offerings on well-known dark web markets has remained mostly unchanged since 2017 according to findings published Tuesday by Flashpoint. The most stagnant prices on these forums, which are most frequently used to buy and sell narcotics, is the latest proof that even as cybercriminals continue to harass victims, skilled hackers are moving to more private channels to trade the most valuable techniques. The quality of the tools, like commodity malware and distributed denial-of-service rental services, also has remained steady, even as defenses have improved. Greg, it looks like the dark web vanished after shining lights on it, Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we had talked about for a, a while just that the dark web seemed to be a lot, I don't want to say a lot of hype, but more hyped than, you know, it possibly ever was from the standpoint of it being a threat. We did some stories earlier this year, particularly around the fact that the dark web really isn't that big. There's only so many marketplaces, and even those marketplaces aren't that big. 
in their own right. So it, it just seems that you know the dark web really wasn't that much of a threat. And why would it need to be? There is so much that goes on on the clear and open internet that's clearly more dangerous than anything on the dark web that can just you know cause as much damage as any sort of you know perceived threat that you would find on the dark web. Like it, it just seemed more hype than than anything really. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's it's just really interesting. Um, I guess I thought a lot more was going on in, in the dark web, just based on like, you know, the scary um, documentaries and stuff that you see sometimes on on the news about it. So, yeah, I mean, all of those documentaries about these marketplaces, I think a lot of it has to do with drugs and child pornography. I mean, there was a huge takedown. Earlier this week, uh, I believe it was an international takedown where there was one of the biggest um, child pornography dark web websites just absolutely, you know, taken offline. People were arrested, and everybody's going to go to jail for some time. Yeah, obviously that's wonderful, but the the dark web and its relationship with malware or exploits. Um, it just didn't seem to be on the same level as what we saw with um, illicit pornography and drugs. The, that was really the, the drivers of these marketplaces. Because again, I go back to it. All of these exploits and, and all of the malware can be found in other places that don't have anything to do with the dark web. So why would anybody bother with the dark web when it comes to malware? Well, we learned from um, someone we interviewed probably going back you know, six or seven months that you know, if you want to buy weapons now, the place to do it is on WhatsApp. So the dark web isn't in vogue for that anymore. Right. Totally. So tech giants Samsung and Google are grappling with separate flaws in their biometric technology that the companies use to unlock mobile phones. Samsung said Thursday that it was working on a patch for an issue discovered by a British couple that allows any fingerprint to unlock a Galaxy S10 or Note 10 phone with a certain screen protector on it. After buying a screen protector for her Galaxy S10, Lisa Nielsen found both her thumbprints could unlock the phone. Google, meanwhile, has acknowledged to the BBC that the facial recognition system used on its Pixel 4 phone will unlock a phone even if one's eyes are closed. Google did not immediately respond to CyberScoop's requests for comment, but Jen, I got to think that if this was Apple, this would be mainstream news and Apple would take a severe beating, and yet I haven't seen the same for these two companies. Wait a second, though. Um, have you used your Apple phone and done facial unlock with your sunglasses on? Because mine works with my sunglasses on. Yes, mine does work with with my sunglasses on. And I think the reason it does that is it's not like by your eyes. I don't think it validates uh, by y- your eyes. It's not an iris recognition. I think it takes uh, a photo, for lack of a better term, I don't know if it's actually technically a photo, but it takes um, a photo of like certain points on your face. So even with sunglasses, you have enough points on your face that the phone still recognizes, so you can still unlock it. I don't think it has anything to do with like iris recognition. What doesn't work is when half your face is smushed into a pillow. <laughs> yes, that that I know that it doesn't work. I think I've done it where my my hoodie. I think if I've had a hood over my head, it doesn't work as well. So there's also that. But um, on the thumb side of things, if you can buy a screen protector that bypasses your uh, biometric thumbprint, 
that's pretty bad. <laughs> I mean, that's actually pretty amazing, right? I mean, all the bad things you could do, you could steal a lot of phones and put that screen protector on them and unlock everything. It reminds me of like a long time ago when um, record labels tried this like new encrypted method for digital rights management, like back when copying CDs was a big thing oh, yeah. uh, and, and they rolled it out and the way to defeat it was nothing more than uh, coloring the bottom of the disc with a Sharpie. Like it just goes to show that there are so, as much money as we dump into these high tech things, the lowest tech can get around them. Like it's just amazing sometimes to me that all of this money that gets poured into this can be solved with 10 cents of effort. <laughs> yeah, seriously. So on the business side of things this week, let's get to some raises and that big private equity acquisition. Uh, on the uh, venture side, Evervault, an Ireland-based company building a data protection solution for developers, raised $3.2 million in seed funding. Sequoia led the round and was joined by investors Kleiner Perkins, Frontline, and SV Angel. Corelight, a San Francisco-based provider of network visibility solutions, including their box that lets you monitor the cloud. Raised $50 million in Series C funding. Insight Partners led the round and was joined by investors including Excel. Flashpoint, who we just talked about earlier, uh, announced that they had secured $34 million in new financing and investment. In addition to the company's raise of $6 million in new equity, uh, Bank of Montreal's Technology and Innovation Banking Group provided $28 million in debt financing. And Toma Bravo, who we've been talking about for the past year, year and a half, uh, bought another security company. They will acquire British networking security firm Sophos for $3.8 billion in cash, marking another major deal that could reshape the decades-old security vendor. Jen, what do you think? That's an exciting acquisition, for sure. Another unicorn in the cybersecurity space. Yeah, uh, Toma Bravo, it's really, really interesting that they've seemed to have planted their flag on this corner of we're the private equity company that's going to go after cybersecurity firms. I'm surprised more firms haven't followed suit because there are just so many companies out there that could be plucked off the heap and and just folded into uh, a portfolio. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I don't feel like I see a lot of Ireland-based companies either um, on our list of business news each week. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, Evervault is really, really interesting from the standpoint of what they offer. I'm surprised that they're not doing more. Um yeah, it looks like it's it's geared more toward uh, GDPR and actually wrapping applications in privacy as well as security. And um, I, I think if let me check here, I'm I'm looking at this. It was um, only founded earlier this year, and the guy who funded it—I'm sorry, not the guy who funded it—the guy who created it, 19 years old. Yeah, 19 years old and your company's already getting, you know, million dollar funding raises. That's pretty impressive. Wow. Yeah, that's really exciting. Now, did he go through like a Y Combinator or an accelerator? Is that sort of the origin of, of finding Silicon Valley Angels, for instance? Um, let me see here. Um, I'm looking at some of the other articles on this. I'm not sure. I, I don't know if he would even have time to go through an incubator because it looks like he just created the company uh, this year. Got it. Okay. Ah, no. Okay. So 
So yeah, I'm not sure if it's uh, an incubator, so to speak, but uh, it started as part of uh, an exhibition project through BT, British Technologies, the big British telecom firm. They were holding a young young scientists and technology exhibition project, which was you know funding research in cryptography and data privacy, and he won the top prize in the 2017 uh, competition. So he's been at the uh, yeah, that's uh, you know really really interesting stuff, and it looks like the money's going to go to growing an engineering team. So I would not be surprised if we're talking about Evervault for a while. Yeah, I mean that's that now is I think the most interesting. I think that trumps the acquisition for sure. Definitely, definitely something that we can look into. Okay, now to our interview with Ori Eisen from Chusona. Ori sat down and talked with us uh, about you know where his product is headed how he is helping the banking industry move away from passwords and how he thinks two-factor authentication needs to go away and it needs to go away quickly. Check it out. Okay, joining us now is Ori Eisen, the founder and CEO of Trusona. Ori, tell us exactly what Trusona means. Thanks, Greg. The name of the company is Trusona, which is the fusion of true and persona. All right. So let's talk about uh, you a little bit before we get into the company. Tell us how you got your start in cybersecurity. About 20 years ago, I worked for one of the largest banks. And uh, one day I asked, where does the money go when it gets stolen from us? And uh, that day changed my life. When you realize that the money that is stolen funds real nefarious activities around the world, changed my uh, life from just working for somebody to a mission. And ever since then, I've been involved in cybersecurity, and my mission is to curb the funding of evil. So tell us a little bit more about Trusona. What is exactly does the platform do? Trusona is designed to eliminate passwords in our daily lives, whether you log into a website, to your television set, uh, answer a call on a call center, all without having to set and maintain username and passwords. I know the dream of many people is to live a life without passwords, but now it is available because we all live with a phone in our pockets, which is like a great computer. And we're using the technology that is already there to circumvent the use of username and passwords. So can you explain a little bit more about what passwordless authentication entails? Because I imagine there's still some some tokens that are being exchanged. And, you know, uh, I think to the user, there may be not be a password, but maybe on the technical side, there is still some type of key exchange. Uh, I would love for you to dive in a little bit more on that. Yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, when we use Trusona, usually we start with... Uh, confirming that the email address belongs to the person by sending an email magic link, and then you click on it. And right after that, a certificate is planted in the secure enclave of the phone, so it never leaves it and uh, no hacker can listen to it. So instead of you remembering username and password, we're using that certificate on your phone to identify the user. So it's very seamless, very easy, and does not require anybody to remember something or maintain anything. So who is signing up to use Trusona? Is this really more of an enterprise tool or do you see consumers starting to use this in their own lives? So the way we work is uh, the company that you do business with, let's just say your healthcare company or your bank need to sign up for Trusona 
in order for you to use it. We do offer some uh, free things for regular consumers. If they maintain, for example, a WordPress site, we have free plugins that allow you to become an admin of a site without the use of passwords anymore. But for the most part, uh, we are working with enterprises to enable their employees to log in without passwords and their customers. So if I am a healthcare organization, what does this look like to my end consumer? Uh, if you are a consumer brand, we give you SDKs or software development kits that reside inside your brand's app. And to describe it, imagine you go to the website to log in and right next to the fields, username, password, and the login button, you'll see a new button called passwordless login. You click on that button takes you to a new page with a QR code that is dynamic. It looks like a movie, so it's a moving object. Then you take out the app of your favorite healthcare company, and in the app, there's going to be a button that say, passwordless login. And if you click on that button, up comes a camera. All you need to do is to point the camera at this QR code. The next thing you see is a push notification on the phone that asks you, hey, Greg, is that really you trying to log into HealthCo? And if you click, yep, this is me, the next thing you see is that you've logged in. You didn't type anything, there's no username, there's no password, and it's using the highest level of security and cryptography to do that. Okay, so that's one example, but I was reading up on your company and I believe you have said in the past that your technology is actually in use in ATMs in Chile uh, across that country. So how does that work? How does it work uh, from an ATM standpoint? Yeah, so in an ATM, you walk into the street, you see the screen of the ATM, and you are given two options. Insert your card and type in your PIN, or passwordless login. You click the passwordless login, up comes that QR code we talked about. You take out your bank's app, you click the passwordless login button, scan the code, and you're in. It's that simple. So. You know, ATM jackpotting, it's a really big thing. There has been reports recently that jackpotting is a really big thing in America. So I'm wondering whether you're starting to see bank companies, you know, outside of South America talk about integrating your software into their own ATMs. So the answer is yes. The top banks in our country realize that friction is everything in the game of retail banking. I will just say for the record, when you look at jackpotting, it's not that the consumer login was breached, it's the back end that causes the jackpotting to happen. So by implementing Trusona for the consumers, it will not affect that one, one bit. What I would highly suggest to banks is to implement a passwordless login to their ATM network on the back end, which will also prevent jackpotting, which is when malicious criminals get in there and control the ATM. Okay. So speaking of malicious criminals, especially around identity and access, uh, two-factor authentication really is a, a, a big thing when it comes to the way that people are protecting themselves uh, on, on phones. So what do you think about 2FA? What is the biggest problem with 2FA right now? Because we talk about the adoption rates that aren't that big, but yet with 2FA, particularly around SMS, you have the possibility or problem of SIM jacking or SIM swapping going on. So what's the biggest problem with 2FA right now? You, you just described it. Uh, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll zoom out and give you the quick history. In the 60s, passwords were invented, and that was the only thing we had, a factor of something that you know. 
about 15 years ago, people realized that that is not working. Let's add a second factor or two factor. But when we use the word two factor, we actually are saying in parentheses that the first one is always a username and password. What we're doing here at Trusona is changing the dynamic where we are using two factors, but none of the two are username and password. For example, we use the phone as something that you have and the biometric as something that you are to give you two-factor authentication that is not starting with username and password. The issue I see with 2FA to your question is that it's so heavily rely on cheap and easy and things that are just there like SMS that we are completely allowing the bad guys to circumvent it by calling the telco and do the SIM swap. In, in my training to our team, I call that a turnstile in the middle of the desert. Yeah, you put a 2FA there, but the bad guys can just go around it and circumvent it. It is only now a hindrance on the friction of consumers, but it's not real security. So what do you see the future? I mean, obviously, look, you have your platform and you want your platform to grow as much as possible. But what do you see in the ways of, you know, moving forward with two-factor, multi-factor authentication that moves it past SMS? Yeah, I would say regardless of Trusona and our offering, if you roll the tape five years, it will be crazy for anybody operating with money or health records or anything of value on the Internet to include static credentials where passwords is the poster child of or KBA, knowledge-based authentication, like asking you, Greg, what's your mother's maiden name? Because I want to know it's you. All that stuff is stolen already. It's out there. You read the news like I do. Any company that still uses static credentials to allow access is just risking themselves and their customers. So I do see that 2FA will have to move beyond the use of passwords. And Trisona is just a pioneer of it, but I see a whole set of you know, solutions and other ideas that do not rely on static credentials to establish who you are. You know, it's really interesting you bring that up because we had a story a couple of weeks ago that Twitter admitted it was using two-factor phone numbers and emails for serving targeted ads. And that phone number was part of the 2FA process, but it seems to be just now uh, a privacy violation as well as, you know, just concerns about uh, security. So, you know, what does stories like this say about just the use of phone numbers as part of the two-factor authentication process? Look, I think if I read the apology later that uh, Twitter did not mean to do that, as in that was a fluke rather than something that was done intentionally. But nonetheless, it should have never been done because you should not mix the permission I give you uh, for you know advertising and privacy with security. But back to the main point, everybody knows your number, Greg, because you publish it, you give it to people. So that is not a secret. And if I know your phone number, I can derive who is your telco, right? It's probably one of the four. And if I know to, to call this telco and to dig about you, your mother's maiden name or your last four of your social, which, by the way, are all out there, I'm sure you know, then I can just become you because I can tell the telco, hey, I'm Greg. I just got this new phone. Please port my SIM. And from that moment on, I can get into your Twitter account. I can get into your healthcare, can get into your bank. Because if they're using your phone number as the way to verify it's you, and I completely circumvented it, where is the security in that? Agreed. Agreed. So, uh, you know, moving forward for Trusona, what do you see over the next two, three, four years? I see that 
people, first of all, will take that first step because today it's unbelievable to them that you can have a life without passwords. And I know, you know, it's, it's a new thing. You have to get used to that idea. But I do think the wave after that will all revolve around what's called identity proofing. So it will not be enough that you have a phone with an email that you've proven to me uh, that is tied to you. The next level, for example, to open a bank account or to go work for somebody and prove your identity would be about scanning of uh, you know, documents that are issued by the government to further get to what we call the true persona or the true sona. All right. Ori, every interview in Securiosity ends on a random question, and I hear that uh, you know, other than Trusona, you actually own a coffee house. Is that correct? That is correct. What is your favorite coffee drink? I am uh, changing every six months my usual coffee drink because I want to try different things. I'm currently uh, on a Breve Cappuccino with extra foam. Wow. Okay. Okay. Interesting choice. And and just to plug your coffee shop too, what is your coffee shop? Uh, the coffee shop I have here in Scottsdale, Arizona is called Lakeview Coffee. And uh, people just say they love it. Okay. Great. Well, if we're ever in Phoenix, I definitely have to check it out. Uh, Ori, really appreciate, really appreciate you hopping aboard. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Greg, for having me. Thanks again to Ori for joining us. And Jen, next week, big week, DC Cyber Week. What are you looking forward to? I'm actually looking forward to um, the Cyber Talks um, and then also your um, event around online gaming. I think should be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to that. It's a really, really interesting lineup for the, the gaming uh, event that we have uh, Wednesday morning. We've been having some conversations uh, to, to prep for that and, and the amount of effort that goes into thinking about security from all of the different angles when it comes to online gaming is really, really fascinating. Really excited uh, to share uh, that panel with everybody. So if you haven't checked it out, check out DC Cyber Week. The calendar is packed full of events Monday through Friday. Tons of stuff going on. Uh, DCCyberWeek.com. Check us out. I'll be around. Jen will be around. If you see us, say hi, and we will talk to you next week. As always, stay curious.